It's 6 Eastern, 3 o'clock Pacific. Why aren't they in jail right now? They brutally attacked a New York City police officer. Coast to coast and around the world, from the America Out Loud talk radio studios. Our criminal justice system is upside down. It fails every day. It's time for The Truth Be Told with Booker Scott. It's a crazy world right now. What was isn't. And what is doesn't really make any sense to most of us. Some may call it an upside down world. Some view it as good versus evil, and it's more than left versus right because the two political parties are really indistinguishable right now. That's why so many of us call it the uniparty. Do you think this is a negative world that we're living in? And what exactly does a negative world mean? I'm Booker Scott, and this is The Truth Be Told. Thanks for joining us here on America Out Loud Talk Radio, or if you're listening on a podcast, thanks for finding us. In this hour, we'll have a conversation with the guy that wrote the book, Living in the Negative World, Aaron Wren. He's going to join us in a few minutes. We'll also take a look at the national presidential polls. Yeah, I know, it's it's early, and the polls are always wrong. I get that. But... They can tell us something, so let's look between the lines to consider a possibility. Schumer and the Senate released the details of the National Security Supplement. What is that? Well, let me just tell you that it's crap. That's what it is. It is crap. The National Security Supplement. Who wouldn't want national security? It reminds me of the Inflation Reduction Act. It's funny, nobody ever talks about the Green New Deal anymore. Why is that? Let me tell you, they snuck in $400 billion of Green New Deal ideas and objectives inside the Inflation Reduction Act. Who's been doling out that money? John Podesta, the Democrat operative. You know, many of Americans are becoming angry. They are seeking to break the bondage of the pseudo-tyranny taking place in our nation. The government is taxing, regulating, surveilling, and socializing the heck out of everything. It's been that way since FDR. Both parties are full of tangled snakes. Some are simply blue, and some of them are red. Our elected representatives are no longer civil servants or statesmen. The statesmen, they've gone extinct. Politicians in both parties and their special interest ventriloquists are pursuing their own happiness while sacrificing the liberty of the American people and destroying the republic. Most of our elected leaders are nothing but pawns. A select few seem to be standing up for compromise and bipartisan agreement. They are the ones trying to lead. However, both sides are equally responsible for the political immaturity in scripted conflicts we're seeing. Nothing is getting done in D.C. except for bickering, stalemate, and the spending of taxpayer money. Freedom is deteriorating by the day in this country because of the actions of both Republicans and Democrats. There is no good side in this situation. No one is winning. Everybody is losing. The division is too fierce on the political stage. At this point, trusting politicians with our livelihoods is tantamount to trusting the grim reaper. The Democrats and Republicans are two wings controlled by the same bird. 
not the eagle of liberty, but the pterodactyl of tyranny. Nothing is getting done in D.C. except what the ventriloquists want the puppets to do. Our elected representatives are dividing us. George Soros, he paid well. And so did the Koch brothers. The NSA, CIA, and Cyber Command are spying on Americans through PRISM and the Patriot Act. Our nation is transitioning into a police nanny surveillance state. Grannies are having their homes invaded by SWAT teams. People with iPhones take food stamps. Some new iPhones are taking fingerprint scans for passwords. NSA analysts could be passing jokes about us as they snoop on our phone calls, emails, Facebook, and other social technology. Currency devaluation and inflation. Further deficits along the rising national debt, bordering on $17 trillion. They're damaging our economic liberty, while the big brother-like surveillance is destroying our civil liberties. Those in power seem willing to pursue their own personal, short-lived happiness and political winning, and their power at the expense of the republic. Congress does not write legislation, nor do they read it. Most of the bills coming out of Congress are wrecking balls that are tearing down the foundations of freedom, independence, privacy, and ambition. All of those things this, this nation was founded on. The regulations add up to over 2,000 pages on most legislation, and our negligent representatives are shoving tyranny down our throats. As Nancy Pelosi famously said about the legislative process behind Obamacare, we have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. That's the American lawmaking process today. The representatives are sticking to that script. Our congressmen, they failed us. The president has failed us. They've yielded this nation to ungodly powers. Being an elected representative in this republic was once a civil service. It was a duty to the ordinary American. Nowadays, representatives are loyal only to the special interests that put them into power. The destruction taking place transcends us all. Yet we, the people, can rise. We can redeem freedom. Freedom is an idea, and ideas are indestructible. Our freedom will remain stronger than the tyranny manifesting itself. America will rise from these dark times. Now, believe it or not, that was written in 2013. Those are not my words. And sure, it could have been written today, and sure, I could have written it. It shows that not much is changing for the good in this upside-down world that we find ourselves living in. Again, that was written in 2013, and that piece was written by Brandon Todd in the Panama City News Herald in Panama City, Florida. I just found it interesting that the words he wrote over a decade ago ring so true now. Even though that may have been a warning, not many of us paid attention, did we? And Congress is still up to the same things. Just pass a bill and then see what's in it. That's what Chuck Schumer, the Democrat from New York and Senate Majority Leader, along with Republican James Lankford of Oklahoma, Kristen Sinema of Arizona, what they have been working on in this National Security Supplement. It's interesting, the name, National Security. 
That's important to you, isn't it? I mean, you would buy whatever it is they're selling in the name of national security, just like that Inflation Reduction Act. Well, let's see what's included in this national security supplement, which was released Sunday over the weekend, and now a vote is expected to take place on about February 7th or 8th or so in the Senate. But there is a lot of opposition. But let's start at the top of the line. Let's see what, what's in this bill. $118 billion more dollars will be spent. We are $34 trillion in debt. We're spending $2 trillion more dollars than we collect annually. So what's another $118 billion? And I'm reminded of what happened during COVID. The government gets involved to dole out money. $300 billion, 200 to $300 billion was lost only through PPP and the unemployment programs, through fraud. They're never going to collect that money. So let's, let's check out the details. $60 billion of that $118 billion will go to Ukraine. $20 billion for border security. $2.3 billion for illegals resettlement in the United States. $14 billion for Israel. $10 billion for humanitarian aid in Gaza. So what do we get for that money? That's a lot of money. We should be getting something. The border is going to be closed, right? I mean, that's what this is supposed to be about. That's what they're telling us. So let's look at it. What, what happens? Well, it allows 5,000 illegals to come in every day. Once it's over 5,000, then there's a mechanism. They shut the border. So my question is, if you can shut the border to not allow more than 5,000, couldn't you shut the border right now and allow zero in? It, that's a common sense question. But that 5,000 number isn't really 5,000 because unaccompanied children with family members in America, they don't count to that number. There is no turnstile at the border. This isn't Disney World. Okay, we're at 5,000. Shut it down. It's not going to work that way. This, this bill is a joke. And by the way, the President of the United States has the authority to waive that 5,000 number. So what do you think Joe Biden is going to do? He's going to waive that number every day. And by the way, we hit 6,500 in one day last weekend. Joe Biden can just waive it. And that 5,000 number doesn't even exist. That's what's in this bill. That's what you're getting for $118 billion. Don't be fooled by what they are telling you. Another thing it allows for is attorneys. <laughs> we are going to fund the attorneys for illegal immigrants to start the process to become legal. This bill also prevents minors from being deported. So we're not getting much for $118 billion, are we? But those are the things that are in this bill. So hopefully there is some Republican opposition. And you know what? There is. Let's see what some people are saying. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul says the bill is an anti-American fake border reform. Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee says she won't vote for any bill that legalizes illegal immigration. And that's what this is doing. That's what this bill does. It legalizes illegal immigration. Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas says the bill grants 50,000 extra green cards per year for no apparent reason and entirely unrelated to border security. The bill also guarantees new government-funded lawyers for illegal aliens. Senator Chuck Schumer says if Republicans don't pass the bill, 
he's going to be sending your sons and daughters to the Eastern Front. We're at a turning point in America. This bill is crucial, and history will look back on it and say, did America fail itself? Why is it crucial? Well, if we don't aid uh, Ukraine, Putin will be walk all over Ukraine. We will lose the war, and we could be fighting in Eastern Europe and a NATO ally in a few years. Americans won't like that. So does he have you scared yet? Your kids are going to the Eastern Front. You wouldn't like that, would you? Here's some more about those numbers that I went over a few minutes ago. If over a week, the average number of people showing up at the border without the right to enter is between four and 5,000 each day, the government can decide to use that special tool I was talking about. The next part of that, if the average number goes above 5,000 per day, then the government has to use it. But then here's another part of it. Also, if on any single day more than 8,500 people show up without permission, the government must use the tool right away. But then keep in mind that every time, every day, Joe Biden can just wave it off. And trust me, he's going to be waving with both hands, flailing in the air like one of those things you see at the used car dealership. That's going to be Joe Biden waving off these days where the border is supposed to be closed. This does nothing. So what senators are against it for the Republicans? I mentioned a few there, but there are a total right now of 18. That number will probably grow a little bit, but ultimately it will pass in the Senate. It, it's going to pass in the Senate. But fortunately, it probably is not going to go anywhere in the House. In fact, Majority Leader Steve Scalise has already commented on it. He said that uh, Republicans won't even bring it for a vote if it comes. And Speaker Mike Johnson says it is dead on arrival. But that doesn't mean that this hasn't been very effective for the Democrats, because it has been, and it's positioned them as the champions to solve the border crisis. For the last couple of weeks, you could hear the Democrats already start the narrative that Republicans really don't want to solve the border issues, which by itself is interesting because it's an admission by the Democrats that there is a border crisis. That's something they haven't been willing to do. So if there is a border crisis that the Republicans don't want to fix, then you're admitting there is a border crisis. Here's some real numbers. The last two years of Donald Trump's presidency, there were 1.3 million border encounters. The first two years of Biden were 5.7 million. And that doesn't count the gotaways and the unknowns. Again, Biden breaks everything, and then he tries to claim he has the answer to fix it. And the Republicans, they're going to be blamed for blocking the passage of this illegal immigration bill that they are trying to pass in the Senate. And there is this from the Associated Press. This was last week. A Tennessee jury has convicted six anti-abortion protesters of violating federal laws after they blocked the entrance of a reproductive clinic outside Nashville nearly three years ago. A reproductive clinic. This is them blocking the clinic singing hymns. And as you hear them singing there, they were blocking an entrance to an abortion clinic inside a building, inside the lobby. 
The jury's decision was handed down last Tuesday after a week-long trial, and it marks the latest development in a case that has been closely watched by conservative groups who have accused the federal government of unfairly targeting abortion opponents by using the 1994 federal law designed to protect abortion clinics from obstruction and threats. Reproductive rights supporters counter the law, known as freedom of access to clinic entrances. At issue is a 2021 blockade that I was just speaking of that took place. And of course, you'll remember that these people, they were also raided. Their homes were raided by the FBI. Here's some sound of that. But if you're not going to let me, then I'll just... No, I want to know why you were banging on my door with a gun. A total of 11 were charged in that. Those six that were found guilty last Tuesday, they're going to be sentenced July 2nd and are facing up to 10 and a half years in prison and $260,000 fines. It seems a little steep for singing hymns at an abortion clinic, but I believe there is more going on here. Again, this law has been around for 30 years. Have you heard of anything like this before? Well, maybe it's because of the DOJ. The DOJ has been weaponized like it is now, and specifically by the head of the Civil Rights Division, that's Kristen Clark. She's been a very outspoken political activist, and here's some examples. She's hurled insults at Republican politicians from Lisa Murkowski of Alaska all the way to Donald Trump. She supported the allegations of Christine Blasey Ford and submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate that Amy Coney Barrett would be unfit to serve as a justice because she would rule against Roe v. Wade. She is 100% pro-baby killer, and she's weaponized the Department of Justice to go after pro-lifers. Former acting assistant attorney general for the Civil Rights Division in the Trump administration told the Daily Signal, it appears she's violating her oath of office and she's violating her duty which is to fairly administer the law regardless of her political views. He went on to say, she appears only to be prosecuting groups that she doesn't like, doesn't agree with. So do we have equal justice under the law? Is this an upside down world? And with everything going on right now, it's really hard to say what could happen next or what will happen because none of us know that for sure. And we usually don't find out until it's too late. At least that's been the story of my life. So what you do about it is totally up to you. It's your business. But when it comes to your money, you should understand what is at stake. So that's why I have partnered with GoldCo because I know this could possibly help you at this very moment. Go to BookerLikesGold.com to get your free gold and silver kit. And it shows you how to get into precious metals, tax-free and penalty-free, even if your money's still in a retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k. And you may already qualify to get up to $10,000 in free silver. You've seen the writing on the wall. We talk about it here on The Truth Be Told. Go to BookerLikesGold.com to get your free gold and silver kit. Because this is about taking back control of our privacy and our freedom. I can't predict the future, but I can certainly prepare for it, and you should be prepared too. At the very least, you should be educated about your choices. So take action. Defend your freedom, your privacy, and your future. Go to BookerLikesGold.com to get your free 2024 gold and silver kit right now.
So we are living in an upside-down world. What is going on? Are we living in a negative world? We'll try to answer that question in just a minute with author Aaron Rins. More Truth Be Told with Booker Scott in minutes on America Out Loud. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our redox-based products tap into reserves within you to power your personal well-being. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. This is The Truth Be Told on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I am Booker Scott. Don't forget, coming up tonight at 7 o'clock, it is Unleashed, the political news hour. That's followed at 8 by the National Security Hour. And at 9 o'clock, it's After Dark with Rob and Andrew. You know, as we look around this country, there are a lot of scary things going on. And if I said we're living in a negative world, what would come to your mind? Probably a lot of things, and probably none of them, are what we're about to get into. Uh, I'm going to bring into the conversation now the guy who wrote the book, Living in the Negative World. His name is Aaron Wren. Aaron, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I think one thing that you wrote in this book, we've entered a new and unprecedented era in America, and it's one you call the negative world. And if you would, just dumb it down for everybody— What is this negative world? I'd be happy to do that. So the negative world specifically refers to the way that sort of society views Christianity. Uh, In my book, Life in the Negative World, I lay out a model looking at the last 60 to 70 years of American history, where we started out in the 1950s, where although we didn't have a state church, we did have a sort of softly institutionalized generic you know, Protestant Christianity is our de facto national yeah. religion. Mm-hmm. Half of all the people went to church. We were adding in God we trust to our money. We were adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. We had prayer in schools. We yep. had Bible reading in schools. Then in the 60s, I date it to 1964. Uh, you can quibble with the dates, but it, it, roughly in that era, Christianity began to go into decline in America in terms of attendance, adherence, and people beginning to question Christian sort of moral norms and moral frameworks. And I divide this 
period of decline from 1964 to the present into three eras or worlds that I call the positive, neutral, negative world. The positive world is 64 to 94. That is a period of decline for Christianity. I want to be clear about that. At the same time, society, especially at the elite kind of official level, still basically views Christianity positively. To be known as a good church-going man makes you seem like an upstanding member of society. And Christian moral norms are still the basic moral norms of society. In 1994, we hit a tipping point and entered what I call the neutral world, which lasted from 1994 to 2014, where Christianity is no longer seen positively, but it's not really viewed negatively yet either. It's essentially one more lifestyle choice among many in a pluralistic public square. And Christian moral norms sort of had a residual effect of that era. And then in 2014, we had a second tipping point where for the first time in really the 400-year history of, you know, settlement in America, uh, official elite culture now views Christianity negatively. We're in this negative world, right? So uh, to be known as a Bible-believing Christian does not help you get a job at Goldman Sachs or Google. Quite the opposite. In fact, Christian moral norms are now expressly repudiated. And in fact, in some respects, uh, certain segments of Christianity are now viewed as the leading threat to the new moral order. You see a lot of the uh, hand-wringing about Christian nationalism being yes. very much right. uh, in this vein. And and so this this entry into a a place where sort of Christianity, where, you know, certainly with the evangelical world that I am most familiar with, sort of viewed itself as the moral majority and now has to face the fact that it's kind of on the outs. And this has been very dislocating. Well, you go back to 1964. Are you able to put your finger on anything that happened that, that changed the narrative to change that that period from 1964 to 1994 what was it that happened in our country was there anything that you've been able to define yeah i i don't subscribe to the where did it all go wrong theory i don't try to necessarily <laughs> um go back and and you know some people go back a long way some people say it was william of ockham ockham and nominalisms where it all went wrong uh, Charles Taylor, this uh, Canadian philosopher, wrote a book called A Secular Age that told essentially a four, a 500-year story of secularization. I mean, I would say, look, the trends were moving sort of away from Christianity in the West for a long time. I mean, even going back to the, you know, the, you know, the founding fathers, a lot of those guys were not necessarily in private, you know, the, the most no. enthusiastic about Christianity. But the key is, you know, the elite never really uh, was is interested in Christianity in, in many respects, but they felt the need to honor it publicly. And they said, well, we need to have this religion in the country to really have a coherent country. Um, what happened precisely in the 60s? Well, a lot of things happened. Obviously, we had the upheavals uh, you know, of the late 1960s, yeah, the sexual revolutions yeah. there. You had the generation gap with that, the Vietnam War. We saw the sort of collapse of the old what they called WASP establishment, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment that had sort of controlled the country in one form or another uh, from a very long time. I mean, there's there's this uh, guy who was president of Yale University during the Vietnam War, for example, was a guy named Kingman Brewster, and he was the 11th generation descendant of Elder William Brewster on the Mayflower. Uh, and so there were still like into the 1950s, maybe even the 1960s, members of the Adams family 
mm-hmm. played prominent roles. I think it was Charles Francis Adams IV that was the you know CEO of Raytheon, for example, for a very long time. And so, uh, you know, that that all collapsed and. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of things that, that that started happening in the culture in the 1960s, and then I think that the next major event that comes along uh, that is really important is the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989. You know, the reason we're adding under God and stuff to the pledge and God we trust the money. It was part of the Cold War. It was part of our uh, competition against this atheist communistic system. You know, Christianity was sort of bound up with the West war on communism. And once communism went away, uh, you know, we thought, okay, Western culture is going to be triumphant and and carrying forward. And people might have assumed Christianity would be part of that. But what it actually gave was essentially a a little bit of a green light to start rewriting the relationship between Christianity and culture uh, and sort of, you know, decentering and pushing out Christianity a little bit. I actually debated whether I should – Put the beginning of the neutral world in 1989 because of the Berlin Wall. Uh, so you know you can you can make some some debates about some of these things, um, but there's certainly been a lot of uh, you know a lot of shifts in the culture over that time that, that really did transform uh, you know society in that way. And again, it's not that the 1950s was some great high watermark of American morality. <laughs> right. Probably it wasn't. No, right. No. Right I after mean, World War like, II, the guys coming right, back. There was only, and, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of hypocrisy. There was a lot of, you know, people didn't necessarily believe, but there was still this idea that, you know, we had a sort of public religion in the United States, which was sort of a generic, again, kind of a generic Protestantism, generic Christianity. And like now the people who are running the country, you know, kind of kind of the elites have decided they don't need that anymore. You know, we can dispense with that. And, you know, to the extent that we we have a, a sort of a moral order, that moral order is uh, – based on ideologies. And the problem with these ideologies is they change all the time. You, mm-hmm. you know, uh, thou shalt not steal is kind of a, uh, you, you know, a timeless, right. uh, a timeless principle, if you will. There well, there really was sort of a, a moral system that had prevailed for a long time. Of course, there's like emphases and changes here and there, but there is sort of an idea that like, okay, great, you can anchor back to the Ten Commandments or something. Well, now it's like whatever the flavor of the month is, right. everybody's got to like all of a sudden tack in a new, new direction. Right. And you see that in, in cities in this country right yeah. now where they're not prosecuting and holding people accountable for going in and, and shoplifting. And now we see right. these shops moving out. So uh, you can steal in America now. Right. It's like you can you, you can walk into a CVS with you know a couple uh, huge trash bags, load them up and walk right out with impunity. Uh, but then again, there are people, for example, that said all lives matter on a company conference call and got yeah, fired. Yeah, right. So, you know, it, it's uh, you're more likely to uh, you're more likely to get fired for an ideological transgression in some respects than you are uh, for, uh, you know, for actually being you know, immoral in some ways as we would have normally understood it. You're listening to Aaron Wren, and Aaron writes on Substack, AaronWren.com. Also, by the way, that last name is spelled R-E-N-N, so AaronWren.com. Aaron, you wrote something in your book, The Negative World Poses a Profound Challenge to American Evangelicals and Their Churches. And it also helps to explain why there's been so much turmoil and conflict within the evangelical world. 
Can you talk about that? Sure. Well, again, you know, evangelicals are used to thinking of themselves as the cultural mainstream, as the moral majority. And so having to make this shift from being a moral majority to a moral minority is quite dislocating. And because, you know, sort of Protestant Christians were the majority for so long, they essentially, you know, relied on sort of the the mainstream institutions of society to sort of reinforce their values. And those are the institutions they look to. Whereas, you know, minority groups, although they participate in and, and look to mainstream institutions, always had like their own unique institutions for their community to sustain community identity and life. And so the example I use is early 20th century Catholicism where there was you know, still a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment at that time. So they had to create their own Catholic schools. They had to create their own you know, Catholic charitable groups. They had to create their own fraternal societies. They had to create their own Catholic universities. They had all these practices like abstaining from meat on Fridays or mm-hmm. praying rosaries that really ident- helped identify and sustain their community life in a Protestant nation. And so evangelicals struggle in part because they never had these to, to nearly the same extent. So that's, that's you know, part, part of the problem right there. It's a big psychological adjustment and then the lack of these institutions. And then, you know, the vast bulk of uh, evangelical um, churches and institutions and ministries were built for cultural realities that no longer exist. And so they need to change. It's just like how technology comes along and revolutionizes everything. First, there's the smartphone, right? So if you don't have that, you you know, if you, if you can't adapt to the smartphone revolution, maybe you're an old landline telephone company, mm-hmm. you're in trouble, yeah. right? Now AI, who knows what that's going to do? So, you know, if you have like a business or, you know, a, a church or anything built for an old reality, new realities, you know, force force the need for change. And so I, I, I think that has really put a lot of pressure uh, on the evangelical church and the various different groups that make it up, and I go through some of them uh, in the book and talk about them a little bit, have sort of deformed, and they're now starting to essentially fight with each other uh, maybe uh, you know, a little bit. And, and so I think it's uh, it's just an uncertain time. You write in the book specific strategies for churches, institutions, and individuals to live faithfully in a negative world. Can you share a couple of those? Sure. Um, you know, about, again, a, a quarter of the book is the di- is diagnostics and the framework and laying it all out. And then the last three quarters are a little bit uh, thinking about how we should live now. There's a lot in that. Uh, I'll just give a couple things. One, I think we need to be, we need to move into more of an exploration mode and be more comfortable in the unknown because we really are in an unprecedented scenario, an unprecedented time. And you, you know, the world is just rapidly changing, right? We've we had, you know, who who saw Donald Trump coming to be president? You know, who saw the pandemic? Who saw the invasion of Ukraine, Middle East upheavals? There's a lot of things going on in the world, and we have to be uh, ready to adapt. And so we can't just easily plot, you know, our, our, our course from point A to point B. We have to be much more comfortable walking by faith than by sight, and thinking much more like maybe the Lewis and Clark expedition, where we're going into this kind of unknown territory and we've got to feel our way along. The second thing I, I say is, again, uh, churches need to be much more focused on self-consciously stewarding and uh, strengthening their own communities, uh, because the, you know, the world is going to be a lot more 
uh, negative than it was. And so self-consciously stewarding your own community strength is going to be very important. It's sort of like learning to think like a minority. Uh, and that, and so doing the things that, again, minorities have always had to do. And again, that doesn't mean you have to be mean to people, hate people, all that stuff. But you have to think about, hey, how do we sustain our community life and what, what does in that essentially look like? something of a foreign land? Yeah. And what, so I th- yeah, well, what does that look like, Aaron? Well, I think some of it is, um, you know, I talk a little bit about it uh, in, in the book. I think a lot of it, uh, I think the Christian education uh, revolution is a good example of that. Say, you know, we can't rely on the public schools. We have to create our own schools. We have to create homeschooling, create educational infrastructure to inculcate our own values. Uh, I think it involves uh, finding a way to create a kind of moral community that can, you know, flourish and uh, be distinct, a sort of a counterculture from from the world. One of the one of my things is, hey, we we should not accommodate ourselves to the rising tide of long term or even permanent singleness, which a lot of people in the churches are doing. We have to help our young people find a way to get married. And again, I'm not talking about people. There are people who don't want to get married, but there are a lot of frustrated singles who want to get married. Rather than trying to reconcile them to that condition, how can we help them get married and have successful marriages and have families? And so we have to we have to just do the basics uh, on some of that stuff. You mentioned Christian nationalism earlier. Can you share some thoughts on that? Well, I think Christian nationalism is sort of like the left's boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's I've, uh, I've talked about it. it. I, I think it's something it, that they are positioning for the 24 election to yeah. make everyone afraid of. Yes, yes, yes. It's, um, you, you know, um, if you go back, you know, even to when George W. Bush was elected, right, people were talking about a theocracy. There's going to be a theocracy uh, about that. You know, people like Kevin Phillips and Damon Linker wrote books. <laughs> you know, basically, it's kind of ludicrous in retrospect. I mean, I think, you know, kind of evangelicals have never been further away from really the levers of power um, in society. And so the idea that we're in danger of some, uh, you know, Christian nationalist uh, um, uh, takeover uh, doesn't seem very likely. And one of the things to keep in mind is, you know, the Republican Party still has a bright future, perhaps, in America. And Donald Trump may be elected, but increasingly the Republican Party itself, it represents a sort of post-Christian right uh, in which, um, yeah. y- you know, it's not necessarily that. animated by evangelical values. No, not not at all. Yeah, it's it's more it's more sort of cultural items and you know things of that nature. Yeah. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for joining us. The name of the book is "Life in the Negative World: Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture." And Aaron, tell everybody where they can find your work. Oh, just uh, you get, the book is available wherever uh, fine books are sold, uh, Amazon or where your local bookshop. And, um, you know, definitely sign up for my website at AaronRen.com, and you'll be able to see all my work posted there. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, sir. Fiction becomes a religion, places where nothing is clear, sanity and reason just Members that could yield you time, I would ask that you. I will have you physically removed from this meeting if you don't stop. I'm just 
More Truth Be Told with Booker Scott in a minute on America Out Loud Radio. Well, the year 2024 must be the year of the Patriot and America Out Loud News will equip you with all the information you need to give new meaning to the words Patriot Act. For our actions always ultimately define our words. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. And we're back here on America Out Loud Talk Radio. While you're here, make sure you go to americaoutloud.news and check out the shop there. You can get 25% discount by using that promo code OUTLOUD at americaoutloud.news. Great content, podcasts, and articles available there all the time for you. And as we get into this last segment, I want to bring something to your attention. I kind of want to read between the lines on some polls uh, presidential polls. I know it's too early. I know what you think about polls, and I'm right there with you. They're they're wrong, and it's way early. They probably don't mean much of anything, except for the things that you can read between the lines. And uh, first of all, let's go to Joe Biden's approval ratings. His latest polls. Uh, this was from uh, about a week ago, the last week of January. These are the latest numbers. His approval rating sits at about 38 percent. It doesn't matter what he does. It seems to always be right around 38%. The economy, he's approved by 37% of Americans. Immigration, that drops down to 30%. So he loses about 7% of his uh, stalwart supporters there. Uh, protecting democracy, that's one of those Democrat things, protecting democracy. Uh, his approval rating is 42% there and disapproval at 57%. The interesting part now is if you look at the polls, you will see that Trump is beating Joe Biden in so many states. And, and nationally, he is beating him as well. You see it 4 to 8%, somewhere in that range. But both of them are still underwater, and that brings in people like RFK Jr., who is running as an independent. It looks like he's going to get only on about 10 to 12 states. So is he really in it to win it? That's the question. He's not going to be on the ballot in 50 states, so the opportunity for him to actually win 270 delegates is probably out of the picture. 
You also have other people like Cornell West running, uh, Jill Stein. Uh, there are several other names there that are taking up right now in the polls. About 2 or 3 or 4% here. Uh, RFK is polling a little bit higher than that, uh, 10 12%. So the question becomes, what happens if Joe Biden or whoever the Democrat is, because I still don't believe it's going to be Joe Biden that will be the nominee for the Democrats. I just don't believe it. I think it's Michelle Obama. I think it's Gavin Newsom. What if it's Gavin Newsom and Michelle Obama with Michelle Obama being the vice president? There's a long way to go between now and the convention coming up this summer. But let's play around with this poll for a minute just for the sake of the argument and to put this on your radar because you'll hear this discussion in some circles right now. And that has to do with the 12th Amendment. What happens if RFK runs and he gets enough delegates to make a difference that prevent the Republican nominee or the Democrat nominee from getting 270 delegates? What happens? There is something that would happen, and it goes to the 12th Amendment. And I'm going to get a constitutional scholar, someone that does a show here on America Out Loud Talk Radio, every afternoon at 4 o'clock. It's called The Constitutional Study. His name is Paul Engel. Paul, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Um, it, it's very convoluted in most people's minds because we don't understand how we actually elect the president. I guess it's so the thing to remember is that this idea of people voting for president is actually something created by the states. The Constitution says that the, the states appoint electors for president based on their relative population. Now, there's a representative in the House and in the Senate. So if, if you have if you live in a state that has, say, 10 members in the House, well, then you get two electors to vote for president, and they get to, they're the ones that actually choose a president. Our political system, our dependence on the political parties has kind of twisted this into a popular election uh, situation. Now, specifically with, with Robert Kennedy Jr., it, it's similar to um, – I'm thinking of Ross Perot mm -hmm. or other situations where we have in our minds that there are only two parties, that realistically we have a two-party system and you, you got to pick either one from column A or one from column B. That's really a limitation we've put on ourselves. So the way the Constitution reads is uh, the electors for every state – gather in their state, they cast their vote for their for, for whoever they want for president. Now, modern day, they've promised, they've pledged to, to vote for their, their party's champion, what we call their party's candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately, according to the Constitution, they can vote for whoever they want. And under the 12th Amendment, they vote for one person for president, another one for president. Those votes get counted, tallied, certified, sent to the president of the Senate to be counted. And that's where we encounter this little stratagem you're, you're, you heard about. If someone does not get a majority of the electors present, the majority of the electors actually casting votes, then 
that decision goes to either the House if it's for the president or the Senate if it's the vice president. So the 12th, and, the 12th Amendment, Paul, as I understand it, is an amendment that made it where the vice president was elected with the president. Am I correct on that? Well, originally, the vice president was the first runner-up. So when, the, when George Washington ran, um, he got the most votes. John Adams got the second most votes. So um, Washington was president. Adams was vice president. This got real interesting in the 1800 election when Adams, the incumbent, I'm sorry, this is, I'm sorry, 1796 election. Adams um, ran to, for one presidency and Jefferson ended up the vice president, but they were of two different political factions. Adams was a federalist. Jefferson was an anti-federalist. And there was a lot of contention. So they developed the 12th Amendment to say, instead of casting, instead of the electors casting a single name, they would cast one name specifically for president and another separate ballot specifically for vice president. That was the purpose of the 12th Amendment was to, you know, to, to have the, this whole nonsense of a, of a ticket. Again, that's a that's a manufactured by the political parties. It does not have anything to actually do with the Constitution. Now, you mentioned that the president would be selected by the House. So let's play along with this little scenario that I'm hearing about RFK Jr. Uh, going in to 10 or 12 states. Maybe he gets enough delegates to throw a monkey wrench in this. And it has to go to Congress, to the House of Representatives, to select the president. What does that look like? Because I guess the new Congress will be sworn in prior to January 20th. So the makeup of this election in 24 could have a lot to do with who the president is if this strategy were to work. Well, even that gets a little tricky. You are correct. It is the new Congress that would decide. But. It is not a vote of the representatives. Each state gets a single vote. Yeah. So it really comes down to not the majority of, of the, um, the House itself, but of the state delegations within the House. What is their political preference? So you would think that it would be, they would, it would side with the political uh, makeup of one state. Right. And I'm, I'm trying to wrap my yes. head around this. And um, I don't know that I'm doing a good job. It takes a lot, Paul. Well, think of it this way. Take a state like uh, New York and uh, uh, California. Very large, very populous states, predominantly uh, Democratic. So the number of, uh, of representatives in those two states that would that are Democrats would be very large, but they still only represent two states. Now you take another state, a state like Texas and Florida, similar situation, large states, large population, large numbers of, of, of representatives, but they lean Republican, yeah. but they still only represent two votes. So you have 50 votes. Is, is that right? Or do the territories also get to vote? For that, if you have fifty votes, because okay. there are only 
they are only uh, voting members from the states in the House of Representatives. Okay, so then we have what? How many red states do you estimate? What is it? The thirty-two or so? Do you think? Um, yeah, I, I, that sounds. I don't know exactly, but yes, I, I would. I would say the odds are better than even that it would lean towards the Republican rather than the Democrat, because the democratically controlled states tend to be populous coastal states. Yeah. As the the more rural states tend to lead more um, the Republican. But it means these swing states, these purple states, actually have a lot more influence. They become a lot more important in that situation. And uh, it was 1801 that the 12th Amendment came out. So you mentioned that 1796 election. As a result of that election and what happened by 1801, the 12th Amendment was adopted there. And so now let's go to the Senate side. You mentioned that the vice president is selected by the Senate. And the Senate makeup right now is not like that. But again, you go to the states. Is that correct? Uh, no, because each state has equal representation in the Senate. The, the, the votes are done by state. There, it's a simple, straight-up vote. So you get uh, fifty votes again, not one hundred, but fifty. No, you, you get you get one hundred votes. So it is completely different in the Senate. Each senator would then cast the vote. So then uh, let me ask you this. We've, right now we're sitting at 51-49 Democrat to Republican. Uh, Democrats have the power. Let's say that it stayed the same next year in, in 25 after they're sworn in. Uh, do they select a, a Democrat vice president? Um, if, again, if we end up in a situation, which is not a foregone conclusion, I, I I think only a couple times it's happened in our history. Um, then what you end up with a whether you end up with a Republican or you're much more likely to end up with a a a split where the president was comes from one party and this and the vice president comes from another party, which leads us in a very interesting situation yeah. as well, right? Yeah. It gets us back to the uh, Adams-Jefferson administration. So the 12th Amendment was put in place to prevent this from happening. But should this strategy and should this happen in 24, the the 12th Amendment will be used to put us right back to what they tried to prevent. And so well, un understand the 12th Amendment wasn't meant to prevent these splits. It was meant to... Um, uh, make an intentional decision, right? So the vice president was not the first loser, the first runner-up. Yeah. You had to choose. And the uh, imagine yourself as, a, uh, as, a, as an elector in you know, 1796. You walk into the meeting room, you get a piece of paper, you write down two names, whatever names you want. Right, and you submit those, and they get counted. In, in 1804, you sit down, and you take one piece of paper, and you say, or you, or you take one list, you say, "Here's who I'm voting for for president, and here's who I'm voting for for vice president." This means that the, the electors have it more control over that goes. It makes it less likely to have a split like that. 
but certainly not impossible. Yeah. And it does not require a lack of a majority to get there. It's actually our slavish devotion to a quote unquote two party system that makes it so unlikely for something like this to happen. Yeah, you can almost see how that two party system has sort of taken over to create the ticket and bind two people together to go through the process. And it almost has become automatic, hasn't it? Yeah. In fact, the whole idea of a ticket is um, I think came up in the 1800s, but it's not, there's no, there's no ticket in the constitution. In fact, I would point out that the ticket actually violates the intent of the 12th amendment because now it's not the elector that is choosing the vice president. It is the president and the political party that's making that choice for the elector. I think it's a long shot that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. could get enough delegates to throw a monkey wrench in this. What are your thoughts on on this altogether? If if he were to get on 10 or 12 ballots and happen to pick up uh, some delegates, what is the what is it going to look like to, in your mind if that were to happen? Well, a lot's going to come down to, in my mind, what happens in the Democratic primary process, the Democratic Party uh, process. Because th- at this point, it's almost assuredly going to be Donald Trump for the presidency even if they take him off the primary ballot in in these couple of states. His lead is so large, it will be extremely difficult. Unless the Supreme Court says he's disqualified, it's almost assuredly going to be Donald Trump on the one side. Uh, You you even get to, say, a Newsom or somebody else. You see a completely discombobulated party. And how do you have people that... um, out and, and vote for that. I, I think they'd end up with a lot lower turnout for the Democrats in that situation. How likely is it? Probably not very likely. Someone will get to 270 more than likely. We keep an eye on that Michelle Obama Gavin Newsom thing, but Paul Engel, really smart guy, listen to his program every day at four right here on AmericaOutloud.news. We appreciate you joining us always here on The Truth Be Told. My name is Booker Scott, and don't ever forget that you were told 2,000 years ago that you are the salt of the earth, and salt without flavor, it has no value. So keep being salty. Have a good night. There is only one truth. You've been listening to The Truth Be Told with Booker Scott on America Out Loud.